Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. You're Deborah. Deborah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Hi, my name is Debbie Bazina. I work at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute, and I'm the managing director for the Center for Connected and Automated Transportation, which is a Region 5 university transportation center from USDOT. Now, what exactly does this research center do? Oh boy. So we conduct um, research in the area of connected and automated transportation. So that includes vehicles and infrastructure uh, and everything in between. Um, we, we have a consortium. So it's not just the University of Michigan, it's uh, Purdue, University of Akron, Central State University, which is an HBCU in Ohio, um, Washtenaw Community College, which is right around the corner from our university, um, and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, and so collectively, we conduct um, about $2.8 million of research annually um, in the area of connected and automated transportation. Could you explain a little bit about what connected automation is? Sure. So when we talk about um, connected, let's start with there. We're not talking about vehicles that are connected to the internet. Uh, we're talking about vehicles that are using a specific communication protocol that was developed for vehicles to talk to each other, vehicles to talk to the infrastructure, so B2B, B2I, and vehicles to talk to pedestrians and bicyclists and really anything else, so B2X. Uh, so that's the connected portion. And then automated um, is you know driverless cars, basically. Uh, so we like to view it as instead of autonomous, which is what you see a lot of in the newspaper, is that we're talking about connected and automated. And so we think to get a commercial, commercially viable product that's as safe as a car is today on the road is you need that little connectivity piece. It gives uh, an autonomous vehicle um, much more... Um, I guess it can recognize the, the environment uh, much more readily like a human can. Uh, so it just gets you one, one step closer to being um, commercially viable. So when we say connected, though, like how is it able to connect with a pedestrian? How is it able to connect with another car? Because my always thing when I bring up with like autonomous vehicles or an issue that I have is like sensing like a drunk driver or sensing some type of anomaly that's happening. Like if there's a weather scenario, like we can take account that the AI will be able to, you know, understand a little bit easier on like slippery roads or things of that sort. But also there's like black ice. There's issues that we have today where even human capacity is not able able to even master that? Sure. So um, connectivity, again, is it's a communication protocol. And so a connected vehicle is broadcasting um, a basic safety message every 10 milliseconds. So it's saying, this is my position. This is my heading. This is my predicted path. I'm a sedan. I'm this wide. I'm this long. Uh, and um, and that it, all that information is much more richer data set than what you get uh, with, with just any single sensor. Um, and so other vehicles that are connected will receive that information and they can uh, do a threat assessment, um, such as what you have on the market today that's used by radar, something as simple as forward collision warning. Um, so if you're getting too close to a vehicle and you're about to hit it, you're going to get a warning. Um, but it can do other things that you can't really do with um, just this, the sensors that are available today. And a lot of that has to do with being connected to the infrastructure. So the infrastructure can also send out messages such as there's ice on the road um, or my, you have a red light um, or you have a green light that's about to turn red. Um, so you can do things like um, red light violation warning. So if you're approaching a light and the driver's not really paying attention, that uh, 
you know, it can get a, a warning from its onboard unit to say, hey, that light's about to turn red. Um, so there's there's a lot of, of benefit out of being just connected. How does it able to predict if a light's about to turn red though? So that would be connected to a network or would it have some type of sensor capabilities that are picking up a frequency that? No, it's connected to the traffic signal controller. So the traffic and signal controller is sending that information to the roadside unit. And so the roadside unit broadcasts a message which is called SPAT, signal phase and timing. So it sends out the state of the signal, which is red, yellow, green, the phase, which is actually the lane, because I was not a traffic engineer, so I didn't understand that. Um, so each, each intersection, each lane has a number. So it can have, let's say, 12 different phases. So one's like the through lane, one's the turn lane, the right turn lane, left turn lane, et cetera. And it goes all around to each piece of the intersection. Um, and then the timing is sort of a countdown. So it's, I'm green for lane three for another 10 seconds. And so that's really the information that's coming from the traffic signal controller to the roadside unit they broadcast SPAT and all the vehicles that are connected can hear it and do an assessment with that. It's also good for things like green waving, where you can use that information and the, you can use it on a corridor. And so basically the driver will get a message from its onboard unit to say, hey, if you go 35 miles an hour, you're gonna make every light in this corridor. So it saves on gas, saves on, you know, reduces the carbon footprint. Um, so it's more than just safety, it's good for, mobility, um, handling congestion, and it's good for sustainability. So improvements to the environment. And when we talk about pedestrians, so if it's interacting with a pedestrian, like would you create some, like I say, if someone's riding a bike, would you just make something that would be able to like, be like how a bike light is where you can show you that there's something there or a person that's riding a bike on a road, or is it connected to another way? So there's a few ways to do pedestrian detection. And, and one is that the pedestrian has um, a small device that's doing the same thing as, as the onboard unit on a vehicle. So it's broadcasting its position, the, the, either the bicyclist or the pedestrian's position, um, et cetera. Or you can use um, what we've done in Ann Arbor is we have a grid smart camera at um, select intersections or actually mid-block crosswalks because we get a lot of um, pedestrian traffic from students. Uh, and so at these mid-block crosswalks, the camera system will detect the pedestrian. That information is sent to the roadside unit, and then the roadside unit broadcasts, instead of a SPAT message, it'll broadcast a personal safety message, a PSM. And that's just really means it's either bicyclist or a pedestrian or something that's not a vehicle, right? And so then that information is sent to the onboard unit, and the onboard unit, again, in, in our case, will either say, hey, watch out, there's a pedestrian, in the uh, crosswalk, or it'll say, hey, you need to stop or you're gonna hit the pedestrian in the crosswalk. So it's two levels, you know, one is sort of an informational um, and then the other one is, is definitely a warning. Now, is this something that's gotta learn on its own? Not like, I guess maybe the more experience or the more that it's implemented, it's going to end up being like a, a database where more information is going to be consumed up into it. It's done real time rather than you look in a database. So it, it's, the the camera system though does use you know AI to learn what a pedestrian is, um, but I don't think that's traditionally stored in a, a database for people to look at and and grab if you know what I mean. Well, I, I would take an account for like black ice or something like that. Like even with uh, like our information that we have on black ice, I mean, as much as we say like we understand what it really is, we don't necessarily know what conditions that would be more frequent to black ice. We know like certain weather conditions, but certain areas, for instance, like case to case basis, obviously certain states have different climate uh, conditions. So you'd have to think that wouldn't that information be stored on like a database or maybe like are these things like able to scan their environment as much as they're able to scan their environment, be able to predict things that happen in real time. They can store some of that information somewhere in case like traffic, for instance, if you want to go to, I don't know, like if I want to go 
over 90 bridge or something like that. It's one of the bridges we have here to get into town. You can look up a traffic cam. It'll show you, oh, the bridge is red right now. That means that traffic is very, very high. So are you having situations like that where you're having something that's able to send or record data for other cars? It would just be beneficial if everyone's using a connected car in a sense. Uh, yeah, so the, the roadside unit system is typically connected to, uh, the, let's say, the cloud. And so that information can be used. Uh, however, the city basically owns, well, I must not say own it, but the city is the one who's using it for, for things like that. Um, but what we do for, for weather type incidents is, is two ways. One is um, that in Ann Arbor, we've embedded sensors in the pavement and they take temperature and humidity uh, readings, and then they infer when there's ice on the road. And then the roadside unit will broadcast um, a traveler information message, so a TIM, to say, hey, there's ice on the road in this location. And then the onboard unit can react to that to give the driver an ice warning if they're you know, about to drive over that patch of ice. Or... Um, because the, the vehicles are all connected to a, a roadside unit, if their um, traction control events are going off in a specific area, that can be used by the back office to be detecting the black ice on the road. Um, and so that can be also given to the drivers. And the, the beauty of being connected, uh, the roadside units being connected by the city to their traffic control management center is that they can warn the drivers miles ahead of time. So they can have the other RSUs being able to warn drivers that, hey, there's this ice ahead and not like immediately ahead of you, but we're talking, you know, a mile ahead of you. And that's really interesting when you start talking about um, accidents in bad weather. Uh, so a few years ago in Michigan, we had a 96 car pileup on um, I-94. And, you know, the, it was blustery conditions. You couldn't see anything. It was zero degrees outside. Um, and one car just kept hitting into the other car, hitting into the other car. And traditional sensors couldn't pick it up in time. And so by the time they needed to stop, it was too late that they were just going to be sliding on top of that ice and snow. So with an RSU system, once that's detected, it can be given to drivers miles behind. And so instead of being a 96 car pileup, that could have been avoided. When we talk about like, what happens if this car, like if it does hit ice and it does start to kind of lose control, I, usually a lot of times, a lot of issues is that people, when they start, when they start losing control of their car, they either do too many quick adjustments or they do something and they end up getting caused and are taken off the road or something like that. Would this car be able to not necessarily predict it, but be able to, when a situation does arise, be able to do some type of measure that would cause it to maybe get it right back on track or at least slow down to a point where it wouldn't cause an accident? Yes. If it's automated, yes. And so that's, again, where you want a connected automated vehicle. Um, connected vehicles, just standalone, are a really good start. But a connected and automated vehicle is kind of like the whole package. And, and an autonomous vehicle probably wouldn't have been able to detect the ice. And this would be easier to start like in cities where there's a lot of infrastructure already it would probably be harder out like in the country or maybe secluded areas to incorporate because you're not just talking about the car. You're also talking about kind of the environment a little bit as well too. installing sensors, not necessarily in a stop sign, but just in the pavement and things that we can use already that we have. Well, personally, I would like to see these deployments in rural areas, not just in the city because it can really benefit them as well. And I, I think typically rural areas are underserved, especially when it comes to infrastructure. And, you know, I was, I was just up north, uh, you know, I'm from Michigan. So, I, you know, I go up north, beautiful country, a lot of rural. And there's a lot of roads where the speed limit's 55. It's a two-lane road. Um, and then there's a crossroad. And the crossroad just has a stop sign. A lot of them are windy, so it's really hard to get a good clear view of what's coming. And plus, they're coming so fast, so it's a little scary. And, and at intersections like that, they're small, um, but it can really benefit a lot. Um, connected vehicles could benefit. It doesn't need any infrastructure in that area because it would be able to hear 
if a vehicle, I'm saying here, you know, hear a vehicle coming, it would hear the, the broadcast from that vehicle. Um, but then you do have the infrastructure um, that you could offer as well um, to even step it up one level. But I would personally like to see more deployments in rural areas. Could you get like, imagine a place like you come to a crossroads or something or a four-way stop in the middle of the country where there's nothing but fields. Now, could you have like this thing, like this signal type thing be set up as maybe it has a large radius. So you don't need to incorporate like this giant tower, but you have something that looks like a sign. I mean, with the more that we talk about smart cities and smart technology, in a sense, they find better ways to hide it from the public, much like our Wi-Fi towers now look like trees. You know, people sometimes don't even know if they're cutting down a tree or if they're cutting down a Wi-Fi tower. So I go, if you look at the giant examination of like a giant country landscape, instead of messing with the environment and building a giant tower, you could just have something where the tech Technology is so good, it's able to transmit 100 miles, 50 miles or something, and then set up another one down the road. But it's so discreet, you wouldn't even be able to tell it was a sensor. Yeah, so roadside units are typically small. They're, you know, maybe a foot by a foot, you know, a couple inches deep, um, have a few antennas on them. They can't be mounted above 25 feet, um, just an FCC slash FAA ruling. And um, they transmit at least 300 meters. Um, we've seen it in our environment that they go over a mile uh, with, with really good accuracy. Uh, so if you had a, a network, you'd only have to put them, if it's straight away, you wouldn't have to put them that far, but every 300 meters is, is pretty far away. Um, and then have them connected together to form a network um, that goes to some cloud or, or back office at a municipality. Now, is your goal to have it implemented in cars first, or do you think on maybe starting somewhere else or taking it even farther than that? I think it has to be a combination um, because so you can't turn over the entire fleet of vehicles all at once, right? So there's what, 250 million vehicles in the fleet. I'm going to call it a fleet, but it's vehicles on the road today. Um, and there's only between 12 and 16 or 17 million that come out every year. And so it's going to take a long time to roll over that fleet and make them all connected. Fortunately, you can do an aftermarket solution. Um, but to get new production vehicles, even with aftermarket, it's just going to take some time. So to provide the people that have adopted it early, infrastructure gives them day one benefit. Uh, so they do get benefit by interacting with the infrastructure because it can make it seem like all the vehicles are connected. And, and by that, I mean, it can scan the environment and generate the equivalent of a basic safety message for all the vehicles in that intersection. And so if there was only one vehicle that was connected, it would seem to that vehicle that all of the vehicles were connected. And in that sense, it makes at a minimum these intersections safer. See, what I found about this is really interesting to me is that when I talked to someone about uh, autonomous vehicles and he was talking about like 2050, 2070, there would be like, a, it would be fully autonomous. All vehicles would be fully autonomous. And when I found this connected cars, um, I, I kind of, I think everyone knows the fear of being in a group of cars on a highway or on something like that. We're going 70 miles an hour. There's a car right in front of you. There's a car right behind you. I'm like right up on your bumper car right beside you. I get an anxiety attack. I start going, Oh my God, I don't want to be here. And that's always the worst spot to be because someone makes a mistake and then it's everybody that's kind of suffering in a sense. And, and this would this be, it's a more effective way of doing it. You have smart technology that's able to not only work in tandem, but also be able to predict things that where a human error kind of falls in. That's true. Um, and connectivity and, um, automation or automated vehicles, they work in tandem. And, you know, NHTSA is, is touting that for platooning, if you make them connected, that you can actually decrease the headway, uh, which is important. You know, people think when they, they view like truck platooning that they're really bumper to bumper, and, and that's not really the case. They're, they're pretty far apart. And the scary part is they're worried about people like cutting in between the trucks that are doing the platooning. So this way, if you use um, connected vehicles, that you can um, decrease that headway enough. Um, but when you 
like what you're saying when you're in this this anxiety um the the connectivity gives you a 360 view around your vehicle um, so it's hearing the vehicle that's in front of you on your sides of you and back of you and it, it can really help and then you know the driver can get warnings or if you have a connected and automated vehicle the vehicle itself will, will take action if needed because uh, i do too i get really stressed out on the freeway and it's not because of my driving, it's because of other people's driving, right? That's what everyone says. I'm a good driver. I worry about the others, but I make mistakes too. Like I'll cut someone off by accident because I don't really see them in my blind spot, even though I have a blind spot detection system on my car or something like that, or I get cut off all the time. And it is scary um, because especially when you're going at 70 miles an hour, that's what kills, you know, speed kills from an uh, old, old saying, but that's true. The higher the speed, usually the more severe uh, the accident have you thought about with the connected cars like what happens if an anomaly happens like someone gets a flat tire or someone gets a blowout on the road is there like an install system or something where it knows to pull immediately over as safe as it possibly can um you know that's a little bit out of my area of expertise and i'm assuming you're talking about like an automated vehicle would the automated vehicle be able to detect it and i know that there's a lot of research uh, being done on on two things. One, when do you tell the driver it needs to take over, which is what you're talking about. And then two, how do you portray it to a driver that they need to take over? Yeah. I don't have the answers to either of those. But. Um, what about like, when we talk about like connected vehicles, could we bring it into the area of large transportation? Like we talk about train systems. I mean, a lot of them they can kind of be automated in a sense as well too. Um, really, you don't need a whole lot of driver interaction, but is the you would make transportation not only safer, but you would make transportation easier and faster and probably more effective in the means as well too. Yeah, so when you talk about trains, I always been trying to get connectivity on trains for a while um, because in Ann Arbor, and I'm sure a lot of other places, there's uh, what they call at-grade railroad crossings where it just has a, a light, but it doesn't have like an overpass or anything for the train to go on, which is, that's where you have the accidents with vehicles. So if they were both connected, the vehicle would hear, hey, there's a train coming, right? Which would make it safer um, in and of itself. Um, but if you want to make things more, let's see, efficient, um, we offer things like uh, transit signal priority. Um, so that's if there's a bus coming and you know that hey, the bus is either behind schedule or has a lot of passengers on it, you can give that bus a priority to go through the light. So it'll keep the light green long enough for the bus to go through or turn or whatever it needs to do. Um, so that's called transit signal priority. But it also also can make it safer when you're when you talk about, I think I'm getting off topic, but um, for first responders. So first responders, um, you know, they're, they're responding, they're going at high speeds. Um, people have to hear and react to them and they could get hit by one of these vehicles. They could get hit by another first responder. Um, but what we can do with connected vehicles is send out a message to say, hey, I'm a first responder. I'm coming up in this direction at this speed. Uh, yada 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 and then the, the vehicles will will be able to tell hey i have an emergency vehicle approaching from behind or from ahead or from the left or from the right and they can react accordingly um, and then also the lights uh can can uh go into that and and the emergency vehicle can request uh preemption which is a little bit more than priority so preemption is just that you know they turn all the lights red basically, and then the uh, emergency vehicle can go through. So instead of relying on people to be able to see that there's an emergency vehicle coming from what direction, they'll be told, and it's very accurate. Um, so it can make our, our first responders safer. And when it comes to like a light being out, for instance, would it be able to send a signal that's like, this is signals not, uh, we're not able to receive this signal. Like, would it be able to detect an error? And also like, cause it's like a working relationship. You have a light that doesn't just help you out the whole entire time. You can actually, your car might actually be able to send a signal that could warn someone like, Hey, this light is out, or there's this type of thing and this needs to be fixed. And then someone can go and fix it. 
That's a good question. And you know, I don't have the answer to that. I've never thought of that before. But uh, it seems like we could do something in that if we lose connectivity with um, the uh, traffic signal controller. Um, I, I do believe that we do get um, sort of traffic signal controller state of health. So maybe we can work something out with that. Because um, when we were talking about trains a minute ago, I remember I almost got hit by a train because one of the train lights were out and it wasn't like the thing didn't come down, nothing like that. So I was going and this train was actually coming. I almost got hit by it. And it was like one of those like probably rare, obviously, occurrences and stuff like that. They ended up fixing it later. But I mean, this stuff that can be avoided if your vehicle can detect it or hear it before, you know, I, I couldn't hear it. I had my music playing or something like that. Same thing with first responders. More people have either a headphone in or they have music playing or they're in their own little world and they don't see the first responder car that's honking at them to tell them to get out of the way as well, too. Right. And I just, I can't hear them. As the older I get, my hearing is getting worse. I can't tell what direction they're coming in. You know, so I'm always I like, I think I hear one and then I'm looking around. I can't see it, you know, so I'm not real sure what to do. I get nervous when they go to the red light and it's not red for them or it is red. It's red for us or something. And then it's like somebody just coming across. But um, what do you think? Uh, Like when 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 can this start being like implemented? Do you think like over the next year or so? Or is there still a little bit of more work that needs to be done on it? Well, there's a little bit of flux in the industry. It was ready to go. So initially we had something called dedicated short range communication. We had a dedicated band that we broadcast in that was allocated by the FCC. It was at 5.9 gigahertz, 75 megahertz band. So it had seven channels. And then um, a few years ago, I'm going to say about five years ago, they started talking about, hey, I got something better. It's called cellular VDAX. And then there was division within the industry. So you have to realize that for this to work, everyone needs to talk the same language, right? So GM has to talk to Ford's, has to talk to Volvo, has to talk to everyone. So we're, the industry standards, everyone needs to embrace and adopt. Uh, so CVDX changes the communication platform. So the data payload is the same. Um, the message set is the same, but the way you hear it is different than DSRC, so they're not compatible. Um, so that 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 kind of stalled things in the industry because they're going, well, should I do CV to X or should I do DSRC? And they don't want to spend all this money to be the wrong one. So it's kind of like the the Betamax uh, fiasco. I shouldn't say fiasco, but the history of Betamax. Well, what if you bet on Betamax and it end up being the other one? So they're they're kind of saying, well, let's let's wait and see a little bit. Um, so they waited and and we're seeing. And then the FCC came out and said, well, you didn't deploy anything, so we're going to take your your spectrum away. And they gave forty megahertz of the spectrum to unlicensed users, aka Wi-Fi. And they left 35 megahertz. No, they gave 45. They only left 30 megahertz for safety. And they said DSRC will be in the first 10. And then CVDAX will be in the second 20. Because they need a wider channel. Oh, by the way. Um, but the, And then they said, oh, by the way, you have to have everything that you broadcast today in that spectrum, which we do in, in Ann Arbor, for DSRC and move it to channel 180. And then, uh, and again, oh, by the way, within two years, you can't broadcast DSRC at all. So basically, the FCC decided that CB to X is the way to go. Um, and so it actually introduced another delay in the industry because they were wondering, well, is this going to stick? A lot of people sued the FCC. And in fact, there was a case that was just heard this February. Um, so they're wondering, well, do I embrace CVX and just move forward? Or do I stick with my investment that I already have in DSRC? So you have to think in, in Ann Arbor, we've spent $50 million already um, on DSRC. And this, this month, actually, we had to quit broadcasting because our suppliers didn't support the equipment anymore. And it wasn't straightforward to move from channel 172, which is in the bottom of the spectrum that they gave to the unlicensed users, to the new DSRC channel on 180. So we just had to turn all of our infrastructure off. Very sad day in Ann Arbor. 
very sad day for me personally because I've spent you know 10 years working on it. Um, but more importantly, it's it's delaying getting this technology out. And every year that we delay is more fatalities. It's it's more life-changing crashes. Um, you know, for instance, a few years ago, I got into a, a minor accident, relatively speaking, and it screwed up my knee. And I'm never going to be able to kneel again. You know, I walk just fine, but I can't kneel. Um, so, well, it gets me out a lot of housework, which is good, but, you know. Um, and, and it could have definitely been avoided with connected vehicle technology. And I'm still got, um, I guess, a form of PTSD because whenever I get into that situation, I'm very nervous. On, will I get into another accident? So my point is this, it is ready to go, but there's just turmoil in the industry because of introduction of CV to X and then um, what the FCC did. Uh, so hopefully that'll be resolved and then we can start deploying this and saving lives. Is there just not enough understanding, I would say, from the bigger companies about what connected vehicles can do? It seems like the main priority for everybody is just autonomous vehicles is just eliminating the human experience in general. No, I don't think so at all. The partners that we work with are, are all uh, major OEMs. Um, they sit on all the committees. So they're very involved with it and, and they do want to deploy it. It's just a matter of if we deploy it, is everyone going to get on board with it? Um, again, it, it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. And I think that's where infrastructure comes in and it helps resolve the chicken and the egg um, because it gets day one benefit uh, for vehicles. Now, if we talk about trying to maybe source out to an aviation company or like you were saying before, trains, I mean, would that be an easier thing to show them that the technology does work and it is way more effective instead of just trying to hurry up and get it implemented into cars? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that they, they and by they, I'm, I'm thinking me, the automobile manufacturers, I think they already understand it and, and they are ready to go. Um, I, I think once this last lawsuit is is finished, and in fact, I, I thought they were going to be um, announcing the verdict uh, in June, and here it is, you know, mid-July, we still haven't heard it. But I think once that gets announced, that we'll see more and more people, um, or not people, uh, OEMs being starting to deploy. Now, it's a lot like what I've heard and what I've seen from your C-SPAN video, it's a lot like a radio frequency as well, too. So when we talk about the different channels in a radio frequency, would there be like specifics where there's certain levels that would be like maybe for government employees as well, too, if we talk about like first responders, if we talk about police enforcement as well? Actually, no. Um, what what you do, it's getting a little in the technical part of it, but um, each message has an ID. So it identifies it as... I'm a traffic information message. I'm a signal phase and timing message. I'm a basic safety message. I'm a PSM. I'm a first responder. You know, so it, that's kind of in the header of the message um, so that the, the OBU can, can figure out what it is and what they need to do with it. So it doesn't need to be on a separate channel. Usually it's, it's on a separate channel for things like bandwidth, um, well, I'm going to stick with bandwidth because that's that's a big one. And, and we're not even sure that we can do everything we want to do on the one channel for CVDX that the FCC has given us. Now, when we talk about connected cars, is there a way that you can make a technology that people can just put on the cars that they have now as well, too? Or is that a whole system kind of difference? No, um, in Ann Arbor, most of the vehicles that we equipped, so at, at the, the high point, we had over 2,800 vehicles equipped with the technology, and they were all aftermarket. Um, so we would uh, recruit people that lived and worked in Ann Arbor, and we'd put it on their vehicle. And it could have been any vehicle. The only thing we didn't do was convertibles. Um, but the other vehicles, we would install the device like in the trunk or under the seat, somewhere out of the way where it wasn't interfering with day-to-day -day use of the vehicle. And then they would get um, a DSRC antenna, um, which is the same thing actually as a CV-DAX antenna. It's a 5.9 gigahertz antenna and um, a GPS antenna, actually a GNSS antenna. So it gets more satellites than, than just our GPS ones. And so the GPS antenna was installed 
either on the um, deck lid, the trunk deck lid, or on the roof of the vehicle for SUVs and pickups. Um, and then it was, you know, uh, uh, snake through into the interior to connect up with the, the DSRC device. I got a really kind of out there question, but how could it take account for a deer? That is a good question. And I don't think it can, unless it's connected up with some type of vision system that is in the environment. And so the vision system would definitely detect it. Um, and then that would be um, sent to the, the vehicles, but it, it doesn't, it, you know, connect connectivity per se can't detect that. It has to be some type of an external sensor that's connected. Okay. Um, when it comes to the vision system, could you explain a little bit about the vision system? Because I've talked to a couple of people who've worked in like autonomous vehicles that talk about in a sense of using a kind of not really a virtual reality type system, which I don't know if it's the same exact thing when you talk about the vision system for a connected car. Um, could you go in a little into a little bit about that for me? So I, I'm really talking about systems they have out today. The, the company I'm most familiar with is GridSmart, but there's a, a lot more. There's a Tiris, um, MyoVision, a few of them, but it's just a camera. The GridSmart camera happens to be a fisheye. Um, so it's, it's something that's commercially available today. A lot of cities use them. They use them for um, helping with um, congestion. Um, so they're, they're monitoring like how many vehicles are going through the intersection and then they can adjust their um, timing plans for that intersection to maybe allow the, the one lane or the, you know, the one side to have a green light a little longer kind of thing. Um, but they're, they're in, they're out in the field now. So it's, it's just commercially available system. And the only difference is, is that system is then connected to a roadside unit um, where that roadside unit uh, can process, actually, you use an edge computer, but that's a whole other thing. So the edge will process, you know, the position of, of whatever is being detected by the vision system, classify it as what it is, and then gives that information to be sent out. So in our case, we're, we're doing the PSM, so the personal safety message, detecting pedestrians in a crosswalk, but you can use it for much more than that. When we talk about saving gas, like kind of the rewards that kind of go with it, saving gas, cutting down on fatalities, uh, reducing traffic, um, better flow of traffic as well, too. Um, what other capabilities does it have, or at least benefits to the user to adopt this type of a connected car? So that's that's the three big ones. But literally, there are thousands of applications that you can do. So if you can think of it, it can be done. And it's just a matter of of what the OEMs want to deploy. You know, I I don't I don't work at an OEM, so I don't deploy. Um, but that's the big three: is safety, mobility, and sustainability. And um, how'd you get started? Just wanting to research connected cars. <laughs> so you know, my background's actually automotive, and I started my career back in 1987 at Ford Motor Company as an FCG. And all the Ford people listening will know what that is. <laughs> but it's just a trainee. Um, and I worked in a transmission and engine kind of things. I, I left uh, Ford, went to General Motors, still, you know, working in engine transmission uh, type of work. Um, but I was never really passionate about my job. And then I got this opportunity to go to Visteon to work in safety, something I've never worked on before, but it was in um, advanced driver awareness system. So that's kind of the prelude to autonomous vehicles, basically. Um, and so I worked there and I, I love that job. Um, we started dabbling near the end of, of my tenure there. We started dabbling in this connected vehicle stuff. Um, but unfortunately, Vistian was in bankruptcy and they pretty much sold off all the IP from my department. <laughs> and so it was me and one other guy. I started in a department of 36 and it went down to a department of two. Um, so I had this opportunity to work at, at Umtree standing up safety pilot model deployment. And when they called me to do that, I said, yeah, count me in. And uh, it's been, it's been uh, kind of my passion ever since, um, you know, to work on something that I can say I'm, I'm saving lives. Yeah, there's that, like I keep bringing back is the human error aspect of things as well, too. I mean, it's something that we've been trying to understand, especially when it comes to autonomous vehicles. That's why I've seen just a giant push for that. Um, just the capacity. I mean, there's just so many things you don't really take into account when you go and in, in actually 
drive your car you know we just look at main factors like if a tree falls which is still rare but you know then we look at floods or we look at all these other things that kind of weather happens but i mean the immense amount of stuff there's so many instances where i'll be at a stoplight or something and i'll look up in my rear view and somebody's texting on their phone and they're not slowing down and you're just like i'm gonna have to move out of the way or this car is gonna run right into the back of me i mean like i mentioned before route 90 um in my town there's at least three accidents a day on there it's one small bridge to get over to an island you have nowhere to go you can't just go into the grass there is no grass you're over water and it's these incidences where a lot of the accidents that happen are just people texting people changing the radio people doing very small stuff where you would think that this would be a giant you know area that we would look at how to fix so my boss henry lou dr henry lou he he likes to say that you know, for, for a lot of these problems, um, AI can really help, you know, um, but, you know, we're talking about like complex problems, but the, the tail end, so the, the very rare occurrences, that's the part that needs to be worked on, um, that you can't really test for that because you don't know what it's going to be. And the, the uh, autonomous vehicles can't learn it because they don't see it often enough, so they won't know what to do. And you do need humans in the loop now for that. Um, but there is, you know, when you bring in connectivity, that helps. When you bring in the connected infrastructure, that definitely helps. And that's, I, I think, between connectivity and smart infrastructure, that's really what's going to make um, connected and automated vehicles commercially viable. And, it, and it's for these instances that you're talking about. And even when you talk about like temperature gauge in the road, where you're able to send a signal and be able to see the temperature just to predict this is the area where black ice would be, or this is the type of situation that would occur in this type of thing. And just having the car aware of that type of thing as well, too. I mean, people don't check the weather usually when they're, you know, first thing in the morning when they go out of their house. Sometimes they do, depending if they got to sleep in, if it's their day <laughs> off. But I go to work at four o'clock in the morning. I mean, I come across a whole host of hazards out there. Deer come across it's nighttime. I, I drive an older car, so my headlights aren't exactly the best. I mean, these are all situations and things that would help if you had an autonomous vehicle or a connected vehicle just to be able to predict, hey, it's raining out. I can't see two feet in front of my face and I'm going 55 apparently. So that's something where you have to kind of take an account as well, too. And I mean, you know, you're lucky if you don't get into an accident. I mean, if you look at the number of accidents that happen compared to the number of the accidents that could happen, I mean, there's a large thing right there where we're talking about an area, not only of speculation, but an area of just like multiple things can go wrong. It's not just one simple thing. So it's interesting that the fact that companies are going like in a different direction when it comes to the technology, where if we, if we have the technology in one area right now to implement it right now, we should be going that way. Well, you know, I, I, I can't agree more. I think it should be deployed as soon as we can. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, the FCC really caused a, a big delay. And in fact, um, uh, Dr. Jim Sayer wrote, a paper a few years ago, I'm going to say five years ago, and he was talking about the delay that CV to X is causing in deploying connected vehicle technology and how many lives um, it was going to cost. And it was significant. Um, and that paper was written five years ago. And at the time they said CV to X is going to delay in, in implementation by three years, but it's been five. And that's mostly because of the FCC. So, you know, every day we wait, is there's just more deaths, deaths and um, life-altering accidents every day. Is that it's got to be a money issue? I mean, to think about the system that we're on right now, how hard would it to be to get everybody on board to change the current system to go to a newer method? Uh, you know, I I don't know really know the answer to that. Um, I like I said, I'm not an OEM, so I I don't know how they make their decisions, and um, and again, it's if everyone doesn't if not if everyone doesn't do it, it doesn't provide the benefits that it's meant to. Um, so it's it's very hard for the OEMs, I'm sure, to say, well, I'm going to be the first ones. And in fact, General Motors actually deployed DSRC in 2017, um, and they're still the only ones that have deployed it to date. Have you speculated or talked about maybe the idea of inserting this technology not only into vehicles, but into something else? 
mine very vehicle centric. Okay. That's fair. All right. Um, is there a place where, um, anybody can find some of your links as well too? Um, sure. You know, CCAT has a website. So ccat.umtree.umich.edu. Uh, it's a good place to start. Umtree has a website. So it's just umtree.umich.edu. And of course there's mcity. So mcity.umich.edu. And can you explain a little bit about, um, I, I mentioned the, the, the city, <laughs> I mentioned the city before. That's what I wanted to talk about. Um, yeah. mcity. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Sure. So M City is a it's a separate organization actually under the College of Engineering. So you know Umtree is also an organization under the College of Engineering. Mostly though, the College of Engineering is departments that are like degree granting uh, organizations, and and we are not. We don't grant degrees. M City doesn't grant degrees, but we do research. Uh, not that the college doesn't do research as well. They do a lot. Uh, but M-City in particular, um, it was sort of, uh, it, actually, Jim Sayer, Dr. Jim Sayer had a lot to do with it. He did the design of it uh, about seven years ago, I'm pretty sure. Um, anyway, the M-City organization uh, has leadership circle members, and it has affiliate members, and the leadership circle members, um, they they sit, it's pretty much like they sit on a board, they decide what research is going to be done, and they contribute financially to the organization significantly. Um, affiliates more are working with a, on, a, on a smaller scale on bringing technology into M-City, trying it out there. Um, so it, typically it's it's not um, cash, but, but in kind, so equipment and technology. But the M-City facility is really sort of the highlight. And that is the first facility in the world that was developed and built to test connected and automated vehicles, transportation technologies. Um, and it's been copied all over the place. So I, I guess the best compliment is, is being copied. Uh, there's K-City in Korea. You know, they couldn't even come up with something original with that, eh? Um, so, <laughs> but a lot of the universities are starting to develop their own facilities. So here's what it is. It's uh, 32 acres um, test track. Uh, it has everything that you'll encounter in the real world. So it has a, a small strip that simulates a, a highway. So it has on-ramps and off-ramps. It has an urban area. Um, that has facades that are movable. So they're right on the street for an urban area. They're farther away for a suburban type area. It has uh, a train track. Uh, it has tunnels. It has uh, a piece of it that um, simulates a tree canopy, um, which is important for connected and automated vehicles because GPS is everything, right? Uh, and, and so you lose your GPS signal when you go in the tunnel or under the tree canopy. And then there's uh, two roundabouts. One you always see in the picture. It's the big one that has the, the block M on it. Um, and that, that, that roundabout is, is actually has a lot going on. So it has pedestrian crossings, you know, and, and then of course the entrance and exits. Uh, so it, it has a lot going on. But the facility itself, uh, again, it, it, it doesn't have everything isn't pristine. So it has what you're gonna encounter. It has stop signs that are faded, stop signs with graffiti. Uh, it has um, light uh, traffic signals that are mounted on a pole, on, mounted on a guy wire, um, mounted on a mast arm. It has parallel parking, it has angled parking, it has uh, you know 90 degree parking, uh, it has um, fire hoses, it has bus stops. Um, it has different pavement. So it has concrete, stamped concrete, blacktop. It has um, line markings that are nice and new, line markings that are dilapidated, different types of line markings like, with reflectivity materials. So basically it has everything that you're gonna encounter in the real world. And so you go in there and you test connected and automated vehicles, uh, infrastructure, uh, enabling technologies. And then the beauty of it is, is you can drive out into Ann Arbor, which is a connected environment, and then you can test it in the real world. So it, it really is a thing of beauty. When we talk about, you, you mentioned like kind of has like a lot of noise. 
um, you know, has simulations or has these aspects where there's like, you know, trees can't go through a signal or you can't get a signal through trees or under a tunnel, for instance. But if we go to like New York City and we have a connected vehicle, it has a lot of bells and whistles that are going on around it in situations where people are just crossing without necessarily using a crosswalk and not getting stopped for it. But that, that happens. We know those happen. You have cars that are kind of, I mean, people say it's kind of crazy to even have a car in New York City because of the traffic there. How does the system handle something like that where there's just so much noise going on that it's hard to kind of drown it out and still be able to function? So there's actually a connected vehicle deployment in Manhattan. Um, and so there's a, a USDOT project called the CV Pilots. And there's three of them, but one of them's in Manhattan. Um, and so they have overcome what we call an urban canyon. So your GPS signal, you know, like when you're trying to find your way on a map and you're not getting a good GPS signal and it, it can't figure out where you are, right? And so it's just kind of either telling you somewhere you're not or just can't figure it out at all. Or it's like I disappeared and it doesn't show me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so they've installed some additional equipment, which I am not an expert on, but I know a guy, um, Bob Roush. So shout out to Bob. Um, and so they have installed additional equipment to help with uh, doing, uh, getting your GPS location. And, and it's almost like a, I'm going to say a repeater, you know, that we use in testing. So a GPS repeater where you bring it indoors it's kind of like that, but way more sophisticated. So I, I would definitely look that up. The CV Pilots program in Manhattan. So New York City, I think they call it. CV Pilot New York City. I'll definitely check it out. I appreciate you giving me your time to talk on the show about this. This is I didn't realize how complex it was. And so he start, started going into it a little bit, but it's definitely new technology. And I mean, when you first started getting into automation or you first started just getting into automotive in general, I mean, did you ever think that we would even be talking about the idea of autonomous vehicles and then somehow that's become more normalized and now you're seeing technology be implemented into we have smart cars. I think there was just a branding thing. It was supposed to be eco-friendly, but now we're actually talking about smart vehicles that are able to kind of read and interpret information based on certain signals that are being sent to it. And I'm like, Man, 2050 for autonomous vehicles, I go, I mean, it'll probably be sooner than that at the rate that we're going. I mean, there's this whole thing expanding out now, especially with the era of electric vehicles coming in as well, too. Yeah, no, you know, I, I'm old, I'm not going to lie. So when I started out, it was all about fuel economy and I worked in engine. So that's kind of what, what we talked about most of the day. And we weren't talking about automated vehicles. So I'm glad to see that we're here. And I think the next step for, for all of us in general is seeing where connected vehicles, automated vehicles, and electric vehicles meet on the road. Yeah, having like a combination of them. Um, yeah, I'm old at heart, I would say. <laughs> uh, when it comes to new technology, I'm very slow to embracing it, but I like the idea of where it's going. Um, but Deborah, seriously, it's been a pleasure being able to chat with you on my show. Um, I'm going to link all your links in the description. Um, is there any shout outs you want to do? Do you have a Twitter? We do. CCAT has Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. So, yeah. Okay. I'll make sure I link those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.